Welcome to the latest edition of the Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is Matt Zemek. Uh, Saqib Ali is producing, but you know he has a lot going on. It's been a different kind of year for him. So I'm going to be uh, handling this particular show. We have a great guest right before the release of the U.S. Open draw and the start of the 2022 United States Open at the Billie Jean King USTA National Tennis Center in Flushing Meadows, New York. George Offman, you know the name? Uh, he's the host of the podcast called Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. It's a terrific podcast. You can find it at all the outlets where you usually enjoy listening to your own podcast. You want to include George Offman in your podcast diet. He has a fresh podcast out this week. Uh, he's done some tennis podcasting in the past, and that's going to be kind of our gateway, our entry into this episode of recalling you know, significant people in the history of American tennis and, and notable Moments and personalities encountered at past U.S. Opens. George Offman, welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast. My pleasure, Matt. It's unfortunate because it's a beautiful day in Chicago and my tennis partner canceled on me today. So I still play. Uh, I don't play matches because I had the tennis elbow surgery 10 years ago. So we just hit the ball and I still can move. That's a good thing. you, You can always get the exercise cardiovascular value from tennis anywhere and, and anytime and that that's part of why it's such a great sport to play. That's why we love it. So yep. George on, on your podcast, tell me a story. I don't know. You interviewed Alan Schwartz. Just tell our, tell our listening audience here at tennis with an accent. And I think, you know, a lot, we have a lot of viewers, uh, listeners from India and places around the world. They might not know who Alan Schwartz is. Tell us about Alan Schwartz. First of all, Alan Schwartz built what is known as the Midtown Tennis Facility, and it was built in 1970. So we're talking 52 years ago. It was the largest indoor tennis facility in the United States, and it still is today, albeit they remodeled it to become a kind of a retreat, a hotel. They completely added a whole bunch of features to this place, spent millions and millions of dollars in in refurbishing this wonderful place that I used to play tennis at quite a bit. Uh, Alan is uh, a tennis mover and shaker. Uh, He has been a very prominent part of United States tennis for decades and decades. And what's interesting about him is he is my tennis angel. I I don't know any other way to put it. So this dates back to 2002 and the only U.S. Open I ever attended. I've wanted to attend, but this is the only one I've attended thus far. And it came out of happenstance. It came out of pure luck. I was doing a talk show then on an all-sports station called The Score, WSCR Radio in Chicago. It was a Saturday afternoon, and it was during the NCAA tournament, and I just said how much I love the NCAA tournament, and it, along with the U.S. Open tennis tournament, were my favorite events. I kind of expounded on that. Show ends, and I usually go and listen to my voicemail. Well, here is this very deep voice. Oh, George, I'm Alan Schwartz. It's a really bad impression. I'm Alan Schwartz, the vice president of the United States Tennis Association. And I just heard your show and really appreciated the compliment. And I'd like to invite you and a guest to be my guest in the president's box at the upcoming U.S. Open. Now, just think to yourself, you're listening to a voicemail of some guy you never knew, you didn't really hear of, 
who just invited you to be his guest at the president in the president's box. Well, you know, he gave me all the information. I called the secretary and confirmed it on the following Monday. Yes, you and a guest can attend this. This was in March. So, you know, we're talking five months in advance. Well, I'm just completely stupefied. The whole thing is unbelievable. Uh, so I get my very close friend who uh, lives, went to high school with, lives in South Florida, uh, still a very avid and very uh, uh, competitive tennis player now at age 69. And we went. And But before we went, the weather looked just absolutely awful. It looked like it was going to rain all weekend. And Thursday, before we arrived on Friday, we were there for the Friday and Saturday matches. It was rained out. But Friday looked okay. And here we're greeted by Alan Schwartz, this rather tall gentleman, uh, who then was, I believe, 72. Alan is now 90. And um, actually, he was 70 then. And he takes us on a tour of the entire facility. Who is this man? He's wonderful. And then we go into the president's box. We're given, you know, glasses of champagne, introduced to the president of the French Open, the president of Wimbledon. And I'm just saying to myself, what in the world? What is this? Seats are fabulous. And we are watching two matches. They went quickly. Serena Williams, who was wearing a tiger outfit, and then Pete Sampras. They, by the way, wound up being the winners of the event. But we... <laughs> We walked out. We went. To, then we went to. I think it was the the the, the next largest facility would have been Ash. I'm not. I, I can't remember. And watched a match. I remember it was a, a British left hander. I forgot his name now. And we were there till midnight. It was fabulous. Next day, it's drizzling. Thankfully, it didn't rain out. We're in the big stadium now, watching the event way up. That's where our seats were at this stage. And watch the contentious match between Leighton Hewitt and James Blake. And then. On Sunday, it was rained out. So we were very lucky. Since then, I have gotten together with Alan. I recently saw him for lunch. He's now 90, and he is one of the most amazing human beings I have ever met. So obviously, George, what strikes me, and it, it obviously did strike you, you know, who is this guy? He just invited <laughs> you without knowing you, without ever having seen you. So what have you learned about the man, Alan Schwartz, that gave you insight into why he you know, made that invitation sight unseen 20 years ago. I just think that he was impressed hearing somebody as a tennis fan. I may have said on the show that I've never been and would like to go. That's very possible. And that may be why he reached out. He's a very generous human being. He's a very affable human being. He, of course, wound up being the president of the United States Tennis Association uh, after he was the vice president. He had a two-year term. Uh, and he is so intricately involved in that, that event. Plus, as far as the Midtown Tennis, he has several facilities uh, around the country and one in Montreal that I believe had been closed for such a long period of time because of COVID. But he is just remarkably gifted at being so friendly and you know he's still so sharp as a tack and i always look forward to seeing him uh and he's made my appreciation for tennis even deeper than it was so let's look at alan schwartz's impact and legacy so you've mentioned you know the reach of what he's done in terms of uh you know facilities built in terms of relationships uh, established in terms of you know how he connects with uh, whoever he's talking to in the room, you know, it certainly seems as though you know, like he 
he always treated whoever was in front of him as you know the most important person in the room. Uh, but when we when we think about how Alan Schwartz has grown the game, how he's grown the sport of tennis yeah. in the United States, what do you, what do you think is kind of the essence of his legacy in that regard? Well, I think he was actually part of the expansion of the U.S. Open facility over the last uh, whenever they started that process five years ago or what have you. Um, and his reach is worldwide. I mean, he is connected to everyone. And um, I think what he has done is he's um, made tennis uh, available, I think, to not just your avid tennis player, but those who just wanted to learn. I remember when they had the advertisements for Midtown, they reached out to women and they had more women coming in and taking lessons. He understood not only the game, but the business aspect of the game. And um, by virtue of that, I think that uh, he has probably helped shape the sport. I mean, he knows all of these people in this game. I mean, the man is 90. He's been part of the game. I believe he was a championship player in college. And I want to say Dartmouth, but I'm not quite sure. It might have been one of the Ivy League schools. Uh, So he has had a far reach over the course of the many, many, many decades that he has been part of professional tennis. Do you have like a favorite Alan Schwartz anecdote, either a moment with him or a story that he personally told you that just knocked your socks off? That's funny. I can't, I I was thinking about that earlier. I can't remember a particular story, but he remembers very well some of the events that I attended and his recall of them was just incredible you know, you'd think a guy like this who has seen thousands of tennis matches has gone around the world to see them would remember the ones in Chicago, which, of course, in this city, we really haven't had a professional tennis tour in decades. There were the women here back in the 70s and 80s with what was then the Virginia Slims tour and then the Avon tour. They should have renamed it the Martina Navratilova tour because she won every year. <laughs> and they think. I think the men had something for a short period of time, but his recall was great. As I remembered the story of the, one of the coldest days in the history of Chicago, I think the wind chill was somewhere around 75 to 80 below zero. And this was the, the, the night before this, this, this coldest day, this was a, I believe an exhibition, a whole week of exhibitions that the, 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 uh, the semifinals were Borg, McEnroe, Connors, Connors, and Lendl. Well, you can't get much better than that in, during that time. And it was Connors and McEnroe in a very contentious final. I remember that. And he remembered everything about it, and so did I. He said, you know, I remember there were about 500 cars that were stalled. I said, I think there were 600, but you're pretty close. And mine wasn't, thank goodness. But um, I just think that uh, what he uh, – certainly I know what he's done for me, and and, and that – that one event will always stand out as, as, as one of the most important things that anybody's ever done for me. But I, as far as a particular story that he told me, uh, I can't really recall any at the moment, at least. Other than I know that they, they, the family spent a lot of money at their Midtown Tennis Facility uh, in refurbishing it. I know that uh, they have tried to, to lower the age of people coming there. And they've done that by 10 years now. They have families coming there. So the man is still very, very much involved in the sport. 
Okay, I want I will want to pull back and go to the U.S. Open and your experience of the 2002 tournament. You know, going behind the ropes with Alan Schwartz. But before that, where were the Chicago uh, tournaments played uh, in the 70s? Was it the Rosemont Horizon? Was it Chicago Stadium? What What was the venue? Well, for those well they, the, the 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 women played originally at the amphitheater. Now it's long gone. Um, and it was also the site of the Whiteman Cup. Now, for people who don't know what the Whiteman Cup was, back then, we're talking 40-plus years ago, it was an, a yearly event staged both in Great Britain one year and then the United States. I don't know how long it lasted. And it was the top British women against the top American women. And so they held the event here in 1980. I mean, Chris Ebert, Martina Navratilova, Virginia Wade, three-day event, didn't even draw 10,000 total. I mean, it was the place was empty. It was a complete failure. Um, but the women played there. Then they would wind up. There were events that were played at the UIC Pavilion. That's the University of Illinois at Chicago. And there's some historic events that were played there that I'll tell you about. Sure. Um, they played at the what was the Rosemont Horizon, which is now the Allstate Arena. Um, they... I, I don't think there were matches at the Chicago Stadium. I think the Nuveen had matches at the Chicago Stadium. Um, and I was mentioning something about Connors and McEnroe playing in one of the coldest days. They also played in one of the hottest days in Chicago history when Nuveen was playing in Grant Park and the temperature was 106. And Jimmy Connors won the first set of his match and then retired and said, I'm not playing anymore. <laughs> I mean, it was too hot. Uh, so that's where they've played. And I know I think recently there were there was an event here, uh, a tournament outdoors on the south side. At the, Venus Williams played. This was, I think, this last spring or summer. So they've played in a lot of places. But as far as a tour event, he has been trying for years and years and years to get a tour event here. But he's been unsuccessful with that. Now, let's talk about Alan. Yeah. So let's now go to the 2002 U.S. Open. You were behind the ropes as Alan Schwartz's guest. You know, you went to Ash Stadium. You went to Armstrong, you know, which was, you know, of course, the old center court right. uh, at the USTA National Tennis Center. So tell us about some of your experiences behind the scenes. What did you learn, not just about the sport and like watching these world-class players play, but also about the business, also about the product, just anything that you that really stuck out on that very special trip 20 years ago? Well, that um, they, the U.S. Open back then, and I'm sure it's the same now, uh, really uh, was a very fan-friendly event. Uh, they treated the customers with a lot of, a lot of class, and I noticed that. Um, and you know, being in uh, Ash now, the Billie Jean King Center, and, and to sit in that stadium where we were, both in the president's box, which is right, you know, basically just on the court, and then looking up and realizing how massive that stadium is, and then to sit in the nosebleed section of the stadium and realize how far the court is away was really remarkable. But just to go and be part of the night matches, which is really the most exciting part of the U.S. Open, was really extraordinary. Uh, walked the grounds, looked at all the shops, the food, the vendors, everything. 
and realized not only is it a big business, it's a big event. I mean, it's a worldwide major event that draws the very best there. And you're really lucky if you can find a way to get there. Uh, I was extremely lucky to do that. But uh, and and to 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 watch these fabulous players playing on all these little courts. We did walk by some of the small outdoor courts, and that was very unique. You know, you'd see just a couple hundred people lining some of these courts and realizing that you're you know, that these aren't the show courts. You know, you're talking about the two major courts. Um, Though that was that to me was quite an experience. And so it's it's a big event, it's a big business event, and it's run very well. So now how close did you get to any player physically? Like, you know, like was Pete Sampras walking like uh, you know, 15, <laughs> 20 feet in front of you? I mean, did you have any kind of close brush with an athlete and get got to see like the emotions or how they went about their business? Like any takeaways in terms of any athlete you saw. And like any, just any kind of snapshot that you remember from the 2002 U.S. Open? No, I don't because I, you know, I wasn't there as a reporter that I have been reporting sure. on everything. And obviously and the funny thing is I, I finally got a chance to interview Pete Sampras when he was at one of these, um, uh, I, I don't know if, I don't know if it was a new Veen event, but it was one of these exhibitions that I think was sure. involved with Jim Courier and Andre Agassi and Pete Sampras. But no, I, I wasn't that cl- other than sitting in the president's box and being that close and seeing the emotions of players. And but in the case of Sampras and, and uh, Serena, I can't remember who they played, but they won in straight sets and they won easily. Uh, so I didn't have that kind of brush, but that wasn't why I was there. I've, I've had too many brushes with athletes. I didn't need to have a brush with <laughs> athletes. In this case, uh, I wanted to see, you know, what it was like to be a fan watching this event as opposed to being a reporter watching the event. Um, and yet, if you're a tennis fan and you're a journalist, it's kind of tough not to really enjoy what you're watching along with your reporting. I mean, we had uh, um, the Labor Cup was here uh, several years ago, and that was an extremely exciting event at the Chicago, uh, at the United Center. And, you know, that's, I, I didn't interview any of the players then. Unfortunately, I could not because I was stuck uh, in a radio booth working. But as far as the U.S. Open goes, no, I didn't have a brush with any athlete, but I had a brush with being there, and that was good enough for me. So a natural question based on your, your experiences at the 2002 U.S. Open is that, you know, what's the difference between how the sport translates on television and how it translates in person? And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not old enough to have, you know, watched Bud Collins, you know, provide tennis analysis on mm. public broadcasting. <laughs> I, I am old enough to, to, to have, to have watched Bud Collins on NBC, yeah. but not old enough, you know, younger Americans might be blown away by the realization that PBS was once an outlet for <laughs> tennis broadcasting yes. in the United States, but that was yeah. actually true. So, you know, I've dated myself. I'm, I'm in my mid forties, my first, encounter of Wimbledon and televised tennis was in 1982 uh, when, you know, that was the year of Jimbo uh, winning uh, Wimbledon against uh, John McEnroe and then going right. to the open and, and winning as well. Um, but, you know, so it's a di- tennis is a different animal on TV compared to in person. And 
So I am aware of, you know, growing up with Dick Emberg and Bud Collins on NBC, and then with Pat Summerall and Tony Trabert uh, on CBS at the U.S. Open. So, you know, you have those shared experiences as I do from the from the 80s. Uh, and and, and you were, then you were able to watch the, you know, the sport on TV in the 90s as it migrated to ESPN. And then you also had the U.S. Open on USA uh, with, uh, you know, Ted Robinson uh, and, and, and John McEnroe carrying those yeah. broadcasts. So then you come to the Open in, in 20, uh, 2002. So there must have been some epiphanies in terms of how the sport came across on TV. And then, oh, here's how it's different. What, what, were, what were the things that you noticed? Just as you said, trying to be a fan and just take it in, not thinking like a reporter or a journalist, but just taking in the atmosphere, the aesthetics. What, what resonated with your experience? Well, back then, I don't recall if they had a video board where you saw replays, because when you're watching on television, you get to see a point, you know, a second time, sometimes even a third. And here, uh, I, I know that when I was at the U.S. Open, then, of course, you are in the president's box, you're behind the baseline, which for me is the best place to watch tennis. It is the the, the essence of seeing how shots are developed and where they're going as opposed to sitting midcourt. That's a tough seat. And so uh, that, that was a great appreciation to be that close and to identify spins and shots and strategy where on TV, it's still a great sport, but you're getting somebody who helps you with the analyzation of the game. So here it's just you and you're, 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 you're helping your own education by watching it. The difference, you know, with the second day when we're sitting up in the nosebleed seats, um, you know, you, you have to really concentrate from that distance. It's, it's so much different. So I'm so used to the television aspect of the game, like most of us are, unless there's somebody who's covering all these events all the time, that you gain a great appreciation for both. I mean, I have a tremendous appreciation for guys like Dick Enberg, one of my favorite broadcasters of all time and McEnroe, and now Jim Courier, who I think is an outstanding analyst. Um, I get a great appreciation because as I've learned about the game, too, I can identify now, and sometimes I'm analyzing the game along with them. But if you're at a match, and I've been to you know a number of matches here in Chicago, they weren't the U.S. Open, I always made sure that wherever the press was sitting, I was going to walk away and sit behind the baseline so I can really appreciate the sport for what you want to enjoy the sport for and that's to watch how these shots are made so my appreciation back then of the u.s open was taking in the the enormity first of all of the building it took me a while to stop looking up and craning my head and realizing there are twenty three thousand seats in this very you know uh, enclosed bowl and i mean it's a tremendous amount of seats for that and concentrate on the game and understand that you you really get an education when you are there live and in person and that's probably what i took away from that u.s open all right so we've talked about your experiences at the 2002 u.s open we want we definitely want to touch on jimmy connors because you know he he is really even now uh all these years later you know now we're not 31 years after you know the crickstein match and the run to the semifinals at age 39 but you know Jimmy Connors will always represent, in a certain sense, the, the soul of the U.S. Open, the boisterous night crowd, the energy, the aggression, 
he, he had a special connection with the New York crowd, with that particular environment. He didn't, he didn't just succeed at the tournament, but, you know, he also, uh, you know, thrived. He was at the height of his powers, as you well know, when the tournament moved from the old Forest Hills site and the, and the green clay, formerly grass, to the hard courts of the USTA National Tennis Center in 1978. That's always going to belong to Jimmy as kind of the man who ushered in that transition and who was such a central part of the tennis boom that the United States had in the late 1970s. So you have, you know, you, you've studied and, and, and observed Jimmy Connors, and you obviously have some stories about him. What, what are kind of some of your signature Jimbo moments and, and, and uh, stories? First of all, he is my all-time favorite athlete, and there's a reason for that. Not only was he a great champion, but he's a great entertainer, and you just mentioned one of the reasons why. Think about this for a second, Matt. How many athletes can you say are great champions and great entertainers? There are not many because you don't see them much in team sports, but individual sports. The other person that comes to mind is Muhammad Ali. Jimmy Connors, and what he did in, in 91 was really, I mean, it is, it is his place. It's his playground. I just watched the fabulous shot as he was getting to that point in the, to the semifinals of that event of the shot uh, of the point with uh, Harhus, which was just one of the great points in the history of tennis, let alone the U S open. I'm very fortunate to have interviewed him on a number of occasions. I mean, when he would come to play events here, he was entertaining. He once played a guy was a Texan. This was at the UIC pavilion. And the, the guy was hitting aces so many that Jimmy went to, <laughs> he went to the bench. He, he got a second tennis racket and put them both in separate pockets. And it, because he figured, okay, I can't get this guy. I'll, I'll use two rackets. That's Jimmy <laughs> Connor. He was hilarious. He was great. Um, I, I mean, the first time he ever defaulted a match was here in Chicago because of a bad back. I'll always remember that. Um, and that was separate but, from the 106 degrees. Oh, my goodness. I mean, he and and when he played when it was 85 below zero windchill factor here. But th that's the one essence of why I really appreciated him is when you watched him, he helped make the sport better. He entertained. Now, back then, you had a lot of interesting personalities. You had Ilya Nastasi and McEnroe. They were more contentious. Well, I guess you'd say McEnroe was that, or Connors was that way too. I mean, how many guys would, you know, play on a clay court and then the umpire is coming down to look at a spot and he rubs it out. I mean, come on, this, nobody could do that except Jimmy Connors. He was absolutely the best. So I, I, I loved the way he played the game. Uh, and I love the fact that he was a great entertainer. Uh, and if you, if you go back, we've seen the dominance of course, over the last 20 years of guys like Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. But the U.S. Open was dominated by two players for a long period of time. Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe won nine of 10 U.S. Opens. No one's ever done that before. There's been no, no such dominance by two players in that event, not even Serena and Venus. They ruled the U.S. Open for all that time. And this was, what, the late 70s and the mid-70s to early 80s? was unbelievable. But for me, uh, Jimmy was the essence of, of, of a guy who never wanted to lose. He, he played every point as hard as he possibly could. 
And then he would just mix in that entertainment. And that, you know, that 1991 run when he was 39 years old, I mean, can you see 23,000 people just leap out of their seats? That doesn't happen very often. He was the guy who made that happen. So I'm a, I've always been a huge, huge fan of Jimmy Connors. And really, there are no players today like him. The, the sport's a little more homogenized now. It's not that it's a bad time. I love, I love tennis now, but you just don't see the personalities that you did back then. And Jimmy was just like the essence of the best. All right. Now this, so this next question, you know, it, it's obviously going to be focused on tennis. I'm like, I'm going to ask you for you know insights through the prism of tennis, but it connects to our larger shared reality and experience of sports in modern times. And that is that, you know, in 30 years ago, 35 years ago in, in you know, when Jimmy Connors reigned and, and when, you know, that, that was the age of McEnroe and Borg and Lendl, you know, you didn't have social media, you didn't have ESPN as, you know, uh, the, the juggernaut, the commercial economic juggernaut. It was so many aspects of the, the relationship between uh, the fan and the athlete and how that relationship was or wasn't filtered in and through the media lens so dramatically different from now. Do you think, you know, when you say that there aren't characters like Jimmy Connors today, you know, do you think that that is a product primarily of media? Do you think it's a primarily a product of, uh, you know, just uh, of technology and or certain other forces? Or do you think that, you know what, this is this change or this uh, progression was not inevitable? There's something kind of very organic uh, that, that is responsible for it. Is it just because the dollars are so much that athletes have to have even more of a tunnel vision and they're not willing to ham it up the way Jimmy was. You know, we remember that when Jimmy began that run in 1991, it was that late night match in the first round against Patrick McEnroe. And yep. he turns to the camera, he turns to the CBS camera at the corner of the court. Yep. And he says, this is what they want. Like, That's right. <laughs> you, would, you, would never, you would never see an athlete do that today. Are, you know, is, are these changes in the personalities of athletes? Are these inevitable forces of the dollars and the media and the, and the, technology or is there something else that you uh identify as being the the source of it well i I mean more recently the technology of line calls where you have the replays and now of course where you don't even have lines judges at all and whatever the call is technology says it is so nobody can argue anymore with the umpire nobody can argue a call so you're not going to see those kind of arguments but i think it was a different breed of players that followed guys like McEnroe and Nastasi and, and, Con- and Connors that, that, that they helped make the game back in the seventies and eighties. But the next group that came up, the Agassiz and, and, and Andre had some pretty good personality, but Agassiz, Sampras, Courier, Chang, um, you know, and on the women's side, you had uh, uh, Monica Sellis and, and Steffi Graf and all of them. That was just a different breed of personality. And I don't know if it was money. I mean, you know, the, the, the purses were respective of the time. They, they, were, they were making pretty good money then. They're making a lot more money now. Um, I just think that those were very different types of personalities. There weren't a whole bunch of those guys. You know, if you think about it, Borg was stayed. Lendl was basically disliked a lot. So he was the bad guy. <laughs> But there weren't that many. Um, so I think what you saw was a, 
a, a, a lower key group of players that came along. And that really continued with R Roger Federer, um, Nadal. Nadal's personality is the way he plays. Um, I think that makes him very exciting. And then you have Djokovic, of course, who's also the, the, the bad guy in the group. Uh, and then you have the technology, which I think has really changed the game. There's still some personalities out there. You know, Curios is a guy that it'd be great if he won. And maybe one day he will because he's an immensely talented player. And he's a great entertainer when he doesn't fly off the handle. People love to see this guy play. They probably like to hear him talk, which he does all the time. I don't know if I, I maybe part of me wishes there was a little more personality in the game. But I think the game itself today is getting better because, and, and this is, you know, you have, you, you have three guys that dominated for all these years, but now you're seeing a new crop of players and there's a whole bunch of them worldwide, um, you know, from Carlos Alcarez to, to the uh, young kids center in, in Italy, really talented players. And I think that that helps to, to, to grow the sport. I wish on the women's side that you, there's something about me that says, I wish there was more of a dominant player on the women's side, because you constantly see different winners all the time. Um, but as far as uh, the, the change, I think more recently, the, 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 the replay has kind of put players in check so they don't have to go argue calls. I think that's actually good for the sport. All right. We know that, uh, you know, you, you have a, you have a schedule. We definitely want to get you out of here on time. We'll want to you to promote your podcast. Tell me a story. I don't know to close the show before that one final question. It's a simple yes. one. A yeah. favorite U.S. Open match, a favorite U.S. Open <laughs> memory that you really cherish and, and maybe that you have some like some details uh, for, for our listeners here on the Tennis with an Accent podcast. That's a really good question that I have not thought of of a specific match. I, I do remember this no that's that that was not the u.s open that was wimbledon oh my god yeah well we have well we have you know well we george we have lots of different eras so like there was the forest <laughs> hills era there was the forest hills clay era which was just a three-year run from right. the mid-70s then you had the usca national tennis center with you know armstrong being the main stadium and then you had the ash era which began in 1997 with that huge upper bowl so really and also of course you know, building the roof at Ash Stadium, that has changed the dynamics of the tournament sure in has. 2015. So the U.S. Open has a lot of different eras. So obviously, when you think about great matches, well, you know, it's it's kind of hard to place them because the U.S. Open has undergone so many different changes in personality. So it feels in many ways like you've had several different tournaments over the years, even though it's one event, because uh, like Djokovic struggled with the sun. Uh, when Ash was an open bowl and it's after the building of the roof in 2015 that he really took off at uh, Ash Stadium because he'd have more uh, shade coverage. So, you know, as we think about the different eras, obviously, you know, like that, it's a it's a very broad question asking for a favorite U.S. Open. Match, you know, I, I, I think... make the point that you've had several different eras of U.S. Open history. I, I think, you know, that the Sampras-Agassi matches were great. And the one where Sampras played, and I, I'm, I can't remember, it was a Spaniard, I believe. When Al, the he, Alex Perecha match. Yes, that's it. 96. That, that match. That match. Vomiting. Is, yes. And, and, you know, how 
what a tough match that was, what a long match that was. And to see both players hug one another at the end was, yes, I, I do. I remember that particular match. I loved watching Michael Chang because who doesn't like watching a guy who's only five, six or five, seven. It's like watching Diego Schwartzman. I, I, I identify with that because I'm, I'm that height, but um, I think that those particular matches were really great when you had the rivalries of specific players that would be going on. Sampras Agassi was wonderful, just absolutely great tennis to watch. Uh, but the, the, thank you for remembering Karecha because that's, that just came to my mind. Um, and, you know, the, the, that U.S. Open that I saw, Sampras won. I believe he retired after that. I That's believe right. That, that was his walk-off. Yeah, I wish I was there to see the end of it, but I didn't. So, um, but, but a, a, an aside, because I wanted to mention that a little bit of the quick history of Chicago. The first time Patrick McEnroe and John McEnroe met in a title match was in Chicago at the UIC Pavilion. The last time Martina Navratilova and Chris Everett ever played a sanctioned match was at the same building. So there's been a lot of history here that I've seen of these wonderful, wonderful gifted tennis players. Uh, and, you know, I'm, this is great because my memory is just, you know, it starts to flood a little bit, um, you know, to, 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 to have seen all these events and to look forward now to watching as much of the U.S. Open as I can um, unfortunately, you're not going to see Djokovic there. I don't know if I should say unfortunately, but he's not going to be there. But I look forward to it because it's changing. The landscape of, of tennis is changing because Federer is not there. And Nadal is hanging on despite injuries. And so you're seeing a new group pop up. And that's the best part of the sport is you watch the youth come up and say, you know, who's going to be the next dominant guy? Will, will it be Carlos Alcaraz? Will he be part of that next group? That's why I love it. And uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to watching yet another U.S. Open. And I'm, I'm very glad to share as much of this stuff as I have been able to with my memory. Oh, I mean, those pulls of those you know, facts about Chicago and, and uh, the McEnroe's and, and Martina and Everett. I mean, that, that's that's great stuff. The stuff that we uh, came here for when we invited you on our show. So we've we've uh, run the course with this show before we go and for our listeners on a tennis with an accent podcast, tell, tell our listeners about your podcast. Tell me a story. I don't know. And what, what kind of, you know, the architecture of the show and mm -hmm. the kind of product that you bring to uh, podcast listeners every week. Tell me a story. I don't know, which by the way, you can find on sports media watch. That's where we've kind of connected now. So if you're looking for it, you might go to sports media watch to find us. Tell me a story. I don't know which was born in January of 2021. And it's um, storytelling by top sports personalities with connections to Chicago. And there are many of them. And we've had guests such as Bob Costas, Mike Greenberg, Mike Wilbon, uh, Sarah Kustak, Eddie Olchek here, of course, a, a, a Chicagoan. And so we've had all sorts of guests, national and local guests, and what they do is they not only share stories of their career, but share stories of their lives. And that's the prominent aspect of it. The connection to Chicago is, is always crucial because they have some kind of connection. Um, you know, Keith Oberman was one of our guests and, you know, his 
connection was that he was almost hired by a radio station here in Chicago and he almost left the network to come here to Chicago to do that, uh, along with broadcasting events here when he was with MSNBC. But all of these people seem to just want to talk. Uh, we have a lot of broadcasters, but we try to see if we can find a, you know, the, the, the different person that isn't a broadcaster, like Wayne Mesmer, who's famous for singing the national anthem in Chicago, and of course, sang one of the greatest renditions ever during the National Hockey League All-Star Game of 1991 when the Gulf War was taking place. Uh, but it's like, and I've used this, this analogy, it's like turning on a faucet and letting the water flow. And this is what happens. People love to talk and they love to talk about their history and their lives. And I let them do that. I'll guide them through it. But the podcasts usually run about 45 minutes plus. Sometimes they're longer. We'll do two parts. For example, this week, as we begin season six, we're featuring Pat Fitzgerald, who's the head coach of the Northwestern football uh, team, uh, a, a very successful coach and a very interesting fellow in the course of Chicago history and national history as well. Uh, but we'll also be having coming up during this season, uh, Greg Gumbel, uh, Ron Rivera, the coach of the Washington Commanders, who was a member of the Chicago Bears Super Bowl team of 1985, Porter Moser, who is now the coach at Oklahoma and took the Loyola Ramblers to the Final Four, which was very exciting. And all these people have some wonderful stories to tell. Lisa Byington, who, of course, is the only female play-by-play voice of the NBA. She does the Milwaukee Bucks. And they just talk not only about their profession now, but what that got them there and what their lives were and why, why did they get into these professions? And so I have a great time doing this. I really, it's, it's a joy for my career. I am going to be starting my 50th year in this business next year. Funny thing is I'm only 39. And, uh, and I've enjoyed this part of doing this more than just about anything else I've ever done in my career. So if you're going to go to tell me a story, I don't know, you'll find it there. But if you go to Sports Media Watch on a podcast, that's where you will find our, our uh, podcast. And we're full speed, ahead, full speed ahead now for season six, which is going to run from now until the end of December. Well, George Offman, you know, Saqib Ali, you know, my producer and also co-host uh, and I, we've been uh, doing tennis podcasts for four years. And so, hmm. you know, stacking that up against half a century of, of, of excellence in, in broadcasting, you know, we, we are honored to have you on our on our show, uh, George Offman, the host of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, some great stories and clearly stories that humanize the athletes and the broadcasters who are part of our shared communal experience of sports. What a great thing to do on a podcast. George Offman, thank you for joining us on the Tennis with an Accent podcast. We really appreciate it. My pleasure, Matt. Hopefully one day we'll meet and we'll meet on a court. Thank you.